Part Two, Chapter Four of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borham. Chapter 4. 4. Ahmed's Investment. Gilt-edged securities are all very well, but men do not make their fortunes out of gilt-edged securities. Gilt-edged securities may suit those whose circumstances compel them to husband jealously their meagre savings, but the big dividends are made out of the risky speculations. There are investments in which a man cannot, by any possibility, lose his treasure, and in which he must, with mathematical certainty, reap a modest margin of profit. And, on the other hand, there are investments in which a man may, quite easily, lose every penny that he hazards, but in which he may, quite conceivably, make a perfectly golden haul. An eastern sage, with a well-established reputation for wisdom, urges us to venture fearlessly at times upon those more perilous but more profitable ventures. Cast thy bread, he says, upon the waters. The man who believes in gilt-edged securities will prefer to cast it upon the land. The land is a fixture. The land does not float away or fly away or fade away. You find it where you left it. It is stable, substantial, secure because of its fixity men trust it for thousands of years it was the bank of the nations men hid their treasures in fields as many a lucky finder afterwards discovered to his delight but the waters cast thy bread upon the waters the waters are the very emblem of all that is fickle variable and inconstant they ebb and they flow they rise and they fall they are restless unstable fluctuating they suck down into their dark depths the treasures confided to their care, and leave no trace upon the surface of the hiding-place in which the booty lies concealed. The waters, cast thy bread upon the waters. The man who believes only in gilt-edged securities shakes his head. This is no investment for him. But the man who can afford to take desperate hazards pricks up his ears. The waters, he exclaims he tells me to cast my bread upon the waters it is the last place in the world to which i should have thought of casting it but i shall venture and he becomes immensely rich in consequence ahmed ali is a young egyptian farmer his lands are in the nile valley and in flood time two-thirds of his property is under water but flood time is also sowing time and what is he to do he can of course sow that portion of his land that stands above the water-line and he does this is his gilt-edged security he is practically certain of getting back in the late summer the grain that he sows in the spring with a fair proportion of increase in addition but on that narrow margin of profit ahmed ali cannot support wife and children and pay all the expenses of his farm he turns wistfully towards the river he surveys the section of his farm over which the waters are sluggishly drifting. Sometimes they recede, leaving a broad strip of shining, gurgling mud. 
he is tempted to scatter his seed over that belt of ooze at once he waits a few hours however hoping that the retreat of the waters will continue and that in a few days he will be able to carry his seed basket over the whole area that is now submerged but his hopes are soon shattered the swaying waters come welling in again and even lick the edges of the land he has already sown if only he could get at those inundated fields the land is soft and moist it has been enriched and fertilized by the action of the flood waters saturated by the moisture in the soil and warmed by the rays of the tropical sun the seed would germinate and spring up as if by magic and the harvest would beggar that of the land that the river has never touched but these are castles in the air the flood is there it shows no sign of withdrawing he knows that after it has gone it will be a day or two before he can cross the soft sticky slimy soil with his basket and by that time the season may have passed it will be too late to sow it is to Ahmed ali that our eastern sage is speaking why wait for the flood he asks cast thy bread upon the waters much good grain grain that thou canst ill afford to lose will float away and never more be seen much of it will be greedily devoured by fish and waterfowl but what of that much of it will drift about on the shallow waters and be deposited as they recede on the soft warm mud from which they ebb with thy heavy feet and clumsy form and weighty basket thou couldst not cross the soil till long after the waters leave it let the waters do their work for thee turn thy foe into a friend make of the tyrant a slave cast thy bread upon the waters it is no gilt-edged security but Ahmed Ali resolves to take the risk. Among the reeds round the bend of the river his flat-bottomed boat is moored. He hurries up to the barn for his basket of seed. He gazes almost fondly upon the precious grain that he is about to invest in such a precarious speculation. He bears it down to the boat and pushes out on to the shallow waters. A tall ibis, stalking with stately stride along the edge of the stream, is startled by the commotion, and flies away, flapping its wings with slow and measured beat. Ahmed is now well out upon the river. The flood that had defied him now supports him. He feels as the Philistines must have felt when they harnessed Samson to their mill. He paddles up to one end of his property and works his way down to the other, scattering the seed broadcast as he goes then having disposed of every grain he paddles back to his starting point and ties up his boat he stands for a moment on the bank watching the seed floating hither and thither upon the eddying waters in some places it is still strewn evenly upon the tide in others it has drifted into snake-like formations that curl and straighten themselves out again on the surface of the flood it seems an awful waste but is it in a day or two the waters recede leaving the saturated seed strewn over the oozy soil it sinks in of its own weight and is quickly lost to view and then Ahmed sees the wisdom of the counsel he has followed and in the summer when he garners a rich harvest from the very lands over which his boat had drifted he blesses that eastern sage for those wise words in my old Mosgyle days I was often invited to address evening meetings in Dunedin. The trouble lay in the return. A train left Dunedin at twenty past nine, and there was no other until twenty past ten, 
or on some nights twenty past eleven it was sometimes difficult to leave a meeting in time to catch the first of these trains yet if i stayed for a later one it meant a midnight arrival at the manse and a woeful sense of weariness next morning on the particular night of which i am now thinking i missed the early train there was no other until twenty past eleven i sat on the railway platform feeling very sorry for myself when at length the train started i found myself sharing with one companion a long compartment with doors at either extremity and seats along the sides capable of accommodating fifty people he sat at one end and i at the other i expected i looked to him as woebegone and disconsolate as he looked to me the train rumbled on through the night the light was too dim to permit of reading the jolting was too great to permit of sleeping and i was just about to record a solemn vow never to speak in town again when a curious line of thought captivated me i could not read i could not sleep but i could talk and here in the far corner of the compartment was another belated unfortunate who could neither read nor sleep and who might like to beguile the time with conversation and then it occurred to me not only that i could do it but that i should do it we had been thrown together for an hour in this strange way at dead of night we should probably never meet again until the day of judgment what right had i to let him go as though our tracks had never crossed at all was the great message that on sundays i delivered to my mosgyle people intended exclusively for them and was it only to be delivered on sundays i felt that my sunday congregation was a gilt-edged security but here was a chance for a rash speculation the train stopped at burnside i stepped out on to the station and walked up and down for a moment inhaling the fresh mountain air i wanted to have all my wits about me and to be at my best the engine whistled and on returning to the compartment i was careful to re-enter it by the door near which my companion was sitting and i took the seat immediately opposite to him i then saw he was quite a young fellow probably a farmer's son we soon struck up a pleasant conversation and then having created an atmosphere i expressed the hope that we were fellow travellers on life's greater journey it's so strange that you should ask me that he said I've been thinking a lot about such things lately. We became so engrossed in our conversation that the train had been standing a minute or so at Mosgyle before we realized that we had reached the end of our journey. I found that our ways took us in diametrically opposite directions. He had a long walk ahead of him. Well, I said, and taking farewell of him, you may see your way to a decision as you walk along the road. If so, remember that you need no one to help you lift up your heart to the saviour he will understand we parted with a warm hand-clasp long before i reached the manse i was biting my lips at having omitted to take his name and address however like ahmed ali i had cast my bread upon the waters five years passed one morning i was seated in the train for dunedin the compartment was nearly full between abbotsford and burnside the door at one end of the carriage opened and a tall dark man came through handing each passenger a neat little pamphlet he gave me a copy of safety certainty and enjoyment i looked up to thank him and as our eyes met he recognized me why he exclaimed you're the very man i made room for him to sit beside me 
I told him that his face seemed familiar, although I could not remember where we had met before. Why, he said, don't you remember that night in the train? You told me, if I saw my way to a decision, to lift up my heart to the Savior on the road, and I did. I've felt sorry ever since that I didn't ask who you were, so that I could come and tell you. But as the light came to me in a railway train, I have always tried to do as much good as possible when I have had occasion to travel. I can't speak to people as you spoke to me, but I always bring a packet of booklets with me. I recalled the inward struggle that preceded my approach that night. I remember bracing myself on the Burnside station for the ordeal. It seemed at the time a very rash and risky speculation. But here was my harvest. I have invested most of my time and energy in gilt-edged securities, and on the whole I have no reason to be dissatisfied with the return that they have yielded me. But I have seldom obtained from my gilt-edged security so handsome a profit as that unpromising venture ultimately brought to me. The only way to keep a thing is to throw it away. The only way to hold your money is to invest it. The only way to ensure remembering a poem is to keep repeating it to others. If you hear a good story and attempt to keep it for your own delectation, you will forget it in a week. Laugh over it with every man you meet, and it will ripple in your soul for years. It sometimes happens when I have finished one of these screeds of mine that I feel a fatherly solicitude concerning it. You sometimes grow fond of a thing, not because you cherish an inflated conception of its value, but because through sheer familiarity it has become a part of you. So I look at these white sheets over which I have been bending for days, and into which I have poured all my soul. I feel anxious about them, yet it is absurd to keep them. If I store them away I shall soon forget their contents, and my labor will all be lost. But the printer is six hundred miles away. I think of all the hands through which they must pass on their way from me to him. I register them at the post office, but still I think of all the risks. These white sheets of mine are such frail and flimsy things, an accident, a fire, and where then would they be? But one happy morning I see my screed in print. I feel that I have it at last. It is beyond the reach of fire or accident. If this house is burned down, I can obtain a copy in that one. I feel that nothing now can rob me of the child I brought into being. It is scattered, broadcast, and having been scattered, broadcast, is at last my very, very own. The only way to keep a thing is to throw it away. Ahmed Ali knows that. He looks fondly at the grain in the basket, but he knows that he cannot keep it in the barn. Seeds which mildew in the garner, scattered, fill with gold the plain. And so he casts some of it on the land, his gilt-edged security, and gets it back with interest. And he casts the rest upon the water, his risky speculation and gets it back many times multiplied. End of Part 12, Chapter 4 Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com